Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hello and welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. Tonight, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the White House Coronavirus Task Force is going to be here. He's going to answer your questions about the pandemic. Also, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo will join us to talk about his state, which is the current epicenter of this fight. This is our fifth global town hall. And if you've seen our previous ones, you know the production has evolved, to say the least, along the guidance, along with the guidance from health professionals. There's no studio audience as we would normally have. Sanjay and I are in different studios, as will be all of our guests. And at the bottom of your screen, you're going to see our social media scroll. We'd like for you tonight to tweet us your questions using the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. A lot of you have also sent in video questions, and we're going to try and get to those as uh, many of those as we can tonight. We also have reports from across the country and around the globe on how those at home and abroad are fighting this virus. We start with where the country is in its fight against the virus. The death count increases dramatically every day. According to Johns Hopkins University, 713 people died today in the U.S., The total death toll in the U.S. is 5,850, at least 242,182 cases now in the U.S. alone. You know, now members of the National Academy of Science have told the White House that current research supports the possibility that this virus can be spread by simply breathing and talking. Obviously, that's going to be very concerning to people. And today, President Trump confirmed that the White House is expected to announce that people should wear cloth masks over their face if they go out. Despite the country's top scientists saying it is critical that everyone stay at home and follow social distancing guidelines, there is still no national order to stay in place. Tennessee became the latest state to issue a stay-at-home order just a day after its governor, Bill Lee, was criticized for not doing so. He had incorrectly claimed there was a lack of, quote, much real data or evidence of what is most effective in social distancing. That's not true. Georgia's governor has now, now finally announced a statewide stay-at-home order and remarkably claims he did so after just learning that people can be infected with the virus and not show any symptoms. If that's true, he didn't know that until now. He has certainly not been paying attention. According to CNN, 10 states still do not have a statewide stay-at-home order. They include Alabama, Arkansas, Iowa, Missouri, North Dakota, Nebraska, South Carolina, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. Alabama's governor has refused to order people to stay at home, saying, we are not California. What she apparently does not know is that the number of confirmed cases in Alabama is now rising faster than it is in California. Overall, about 93 percent of Americans live under a shelter-in-place order, a stay-at-home order, or will by tomorrow. This is where we are. It's a different place than just a week ago. Mm. 
what we are looking at right now is a new reality in the coronavirus pandemic. Governors in at least three states are warning that they will soon run out of ventilators. Up to 240,000 Americans could die from coronavirus. In the U.S., there are now more than 230,000 cases of coronavirus. More than 5,000 people have died, and new pockets of outbreaks have emerged across the country. Convention centers are being turned into overflow facilities in New York, New Orleans, Chicago, Detroit, and Los Angeles. In the U.S., New York remains the epicenter of the pandemic, with more than 90,000 cases. We have been behind it from day one since it got here. And we've been playing catch-up. You don't win playing catch-up. We have to get ahead of it. A field hospital has now been set up in Central Park, and the USNS Comfort, a Navy hospital ship, is docked in New York City. The last time this ship was deployed to New York was after the terror attacks of 9-11. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. Most Americans are now under stay-at-home orders, though against the advice of scientists, a handful of states are still holding out on issuing statewide restrictions with projections showing there could be as many as 240,000 deaths in the U.S. from this virus, the White House has asked for social distancing guidelines to stay in place through at least April 30th. It's within our power to modify those numbers. If you really push hard on mitigation and data comes in that tells you you're doing better than the model, you can modify the model. Sanjay, I want to follow up on something that we mentioned at the top. I've seen it's count 10 states don't have stay-at-home orders. One of them, Georgia, which just announced theirs. I want to play for everyone what Governor Brian Kemp said yesterday about why he waited and what he said about the ability of people who have the virus don't show symptoms to spread the virus. Take a look. Finding out that this virus is now transmitting before people see signs. So the what we've been telling people from directives from the CDC for weeks now that if you start feeling bad, stay home. Uh, those individuals could have been infecting people before they ever felt bad. Well, we didn't know that until the last 24 hours. I mean, if he didn't know that until the last 24 hours, he might be the only person, <laughs> certainly the only, you know, alleged leader uh, to, to, to not know that. I find that incredible. I, I, it, it's inexcusable, Anderson. I mean, th- this is this is really... Um, I, I can't believe I, I, you know, I live in Georgia, as you know, and I can tell you I have grade school students that are, you know, my kids who, who know this. The CDC has been talking about this since the beginning of February. You know where the CDC is? In Georgia, the same state uh, where, where the governor said he didn't know this until the last 24 hours. I mean, I, you know, Anderson, this, this is a, a, one of the most serious issues I think maybe any of us will sort of deal with perhaps in our lifetime. And the governor of, of a state says he didn't know something that the country has known and has been acting on, uh, thinking about for two months. He says he didn't know this until the last 24 hours. And then I mean, that's what caused him to do something, frankly, I mean, if you listen to any scientist, any scientist will say this is what everybody should be doing. We know this is what works. It may be the only thing we know works. And yet all, some of these governors are just not doing it. Right. And, and I mean, you know, I, there's lots of I'm sure different governors are saying different things. But for this governor, uh, Governor Kemp, to say, I didn't know this in, until the last 24 hours. I, you know, I don't know what to call that. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly, you know, ignorance. I, he has some of the best public health scientists in the world that are right down the street. So, I mean, I, I hope, you know, we act. I hope it makes a difference. But I worry 
that it's that it's too late and you know yeah. people are going to suffer anderson well it's also like florida it's not even in place tomorrow so we're all, right. already saying as if it's in place it's not sanjay we have reporters here in new york around the world i want to start with erica hill at elmhurst hospital in queens an area considered the epicenter of the epicenter of this pandemic in the u.s erica talk about what's the latest mm. Yeah, well, what we're seeing here in New York City specifically, as you were talking about guidance potentially coming from the White House about wearing a covering over your face outside, that's already happening here in New York City. Mayor de Blasio earlier today saying he is advising New Yorkers when they go outside to cover their faces when they're outside, if they have to be out there. But he stressed this should be a scarf or a bandana. Leave the masks for the healthcare workers. There is also a real focus on Sunday because that's when a lot of the supplies we're learning could run out. That's the fear here in New York City. The mayor also said by Sunday he needs a thousand additional nurses, 300 respiratory therapists, and 150 doctors. And we've talked so much about these auxiliary facilities at the Javits Center, some 2,500 beds put in. That was supposed to be for non-COVID patients. The governor announcing that he asked President Trump if that could be used, in fact, for coronavirus patients. The president has granted that request. And so that will now be used for those patients. But you tell you there are 16 patients being treated at the field hospital in Central Park. One is in the ICU tonight. And, and, you know, Erica, you know, Elmhurst Hospital obviously has left a big impression on people. People have seen the inside. You've been there on and off for the last week. Is there relief there? I mean, to the extent that it's a microcosm, is it improving at all in terms of the numbers? You know, it's, it's interesting. We actually saw more people outside today, Sanjay, waiting to get in at a safe distance from one another. I would say further apart than they were last week when they saw them all wearing masks. This is one of the hardest hit areas, as you know. Part of that reason we've been told by officials is, look here in Queens, people live together. You are in a small apartment. You may have multiple family units living together. So as much as there's social distancing outside, it's harder to do inside. Um, but there was a really special moment tonight, and, and I, I know you're going to let us share that. The FDNY showed up at shift change here just before 7 o'clock, and they were here to thank the healthcare workers at Elmhurst Hospital. And I just want to play a little bit of that moment of heroes thanking heroes tonight. Take a look. that healthcare workers visibly moved, the firefighters so appreciative and moved, and I have to say witnessing it was really, um, it was really quite a moment to see. Yeah, those folks on the front lines of this. Uh, Eric Hill, thanks. Now to China, the original epicenter of the outbreak reports that things are starting to get back to normal and that China might have been dramatically underreporting their death toll. David Culver is in Shanghai for us. Uh, are you seeing some return there to some sort of normalcy? We are, Anders, and it is little by little. I know a lot of folks, you know, reach out, not only my own family, friends, some of our colleagues even, hoping that this is the light at the end of the tunnel. I got to tell you, though, in, in recent days, and I'm not going to say the light has gone dark again, but it certainly has flickered back and forth. And what we have seen is while folks are still going back out on the streets and, and you see traffic building up and there seems to be more and more comfort to even go out to restaurants, there's also now coming down new restrictions from the government, and they come down rather swiftly. So, for example, movie theaters had opened back up. Indoor tourist attractions like the Oriental Pearl Tower behind me were open just for a few hours or a few days. Then they were shut back down because of this concern of now imported cases and asymptomatic cases and people as these easing of restrictions come into play here, especially in the next week, moving back around again and potentially spreading more of this virus. So there is some worry about that in this potential second wave. 
Um, David, first of all, I just got to say again, your reporting has just been phenomenal. You've probably followed some of the, the news here in, in the States. There's, there sort of seems to be this renewed skepticism about just how reliable China's numbers were, especially in the beginning, how transparent they were. You're there. Uh, have you learned anything new on that regard? Well, I appreciate you saying that, Sanjay. I rely heavily on my team here. And to that point, I've relied on my team for many weeks now. So we've been covering this for two and a half months. And as far as the skepticism is concerned, yeah, it's there. And our early reporting showed that. I mean, we were hearing stories from the front lines, not only from people within Wuhan who were seeing the symptoms among their family members, seeing loved ones pass away, and then be told by doctors, well, we didn't have the testing, we couldn't confirm it, so we're just going to label it as severe pneumonia, knowing that then those individuals don't go towards the total death toll count. We also heard from folks and doctors and nurses who were describing the dire shortages uh, of supplies and everything. And, and what we've seen now since is that there is still a skepticism, and, and that's renewed when you see the methodology and how these numbers are being released by the Chinese government, particularly this past week when they just now have started adding these asymptomatic cases. And that's something that even certain Chinese media had been calling for. That being said, the Chinese government has come out strong in the past week, really taking to the podium for 10 minutes at the foreign ministry, slamming the U.S., slamming Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo, essentially saying that what China was going through was known early on, including back in January, and that's indicated by what the CDC had put out. They also suggest that when the consulate in Wuhan was closed, for example, on January 25th, and then the travel ban was put in in early February, those are indicators that the U.S. knew the severity of this. The question they then posed to the U.S. is why does it take two months for action to then take place uh, and, and start reacting to, mm. you know, how to handle this? Mm. Yeah. David Culver, uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Ben Wiedemann is in Rome for us. On Wednesday, Vice President Mike Pence said in an interview on CNN that the outbreak in this country is most comparable to the one in Italy. Ben, if what Vice President Pence says is accurate, what can Americans expect in the weeks ahead? Well, they can expect, Anderson, things to get a lot worse because Italy right now seems to be coming out of the most difficult phase uh, in this crisis. But uh, in terms of the death toll, which is now more than 13,000, the more painful phase is yet to come. People, oddly, are taking relief at the fact uh, that the death toll is now down the daily death toll is now down to the 700s. Uh, What we're seeing is, for instance, the number of new cases being reported in the last uh, 24 hours is about half what it was uh, two weeks ago. But this has come at a huge cost uh, to Italy in terms of simply the number of people dead and the damage to the economy. And uh, you're really beginning to feel that the initial high morale people had with singing from their balconies and whatnot is wearing out, wearing out. People are worried about the economy, worried about the future, uh, worried about the ability of this country to function after the huge blow uh, that it took and continues to take uh, from this uh, outbreak. We're now well into our fourth week of the lockdown here, and the government is talking about uh, perhaps easing measures sometime in mid-April, but uh, at this point, there's no clear indication when real measures, real, a real relaxation of the measures will take place, and I can tell you the frustration with this new way of life 
is becoming intense. Anderson? Um, yeah, Ben, you know, the, the apex of the curve, that's what everyone's talking about. The apex of the curve is quite high in Italy. That's why there were so many people who got sick and died. Uh, but now as the numbers come down, are, are, are people over there, are they, are they uh, cautious that the numbers will continue to come down? Do they believe it? Or, or are they still, still worried about it going back up? I think people are cautiously optimistic because I can tell you every evening at 6 p.m. when the Civil Protection Agency here puts out its statistics, people are holding their breath to see are, are, is, is it going to get better or isn't it? And uh, certainly over the last few days, there has been something of a cautious uh, sigh of relief, but not everyone is convinced that the worst is over and certainly the numbers may be somewhat deceptive uh, some italian officials are saying that the actual number of reported cases as opposed to the 110 in the teens a thousand cases uh, it's actually around 600,000 cases but many people either show very few symptoms or no symptoms at all and of course they're the biggest danger in terms of spreading uh, the virus. Sanjay? Ben, ben, thanks very much. Uh, Sanjay, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House Task Force, joins us to answer your coronavirus questions. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. We continue the CNN Global Town Hall coronavirus facts and fears with answers to your questions about the pandemic. At the bottom of the screen, you'll see our social media scroll that shows the questions that people are asking. Joining Sanjay and me with, uh, with answers, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Fauci, we want to get to viewer questions in just a moment. For first, knowing the signs, does it make sense to you that some states are still not issuing stay-at-home orders? I mean, whether there should be a federally mandated uh, directive for that or not, that I guess that's more of a political question, but just scientifically doesn't everybody have to be on the same page with this stuff yeah i i think so anderson i don't understand why that's not happening as you said you know the tension between federally mandated versus states rights to do what they want is something i don't want to get into but if you look at what's going on in this country i just don't understand why we're not doing that we really should be I appreciate you being very clear about that uh, because I think it is very frustrating, especially for people who live in some of these states, Dr. Fauci. But let me ask you about a different issue. Um, there, there's a top health expert issue from the National Academy issued a warning to the White House that the coronavirus could spread uh, through even breathing and talking. I think they were sort of making the case that maybe this is more airborne than we realized. I remember right. the other day we talked about the fact right. that you still go outside for runs. You run at late night even with your wife. With this new information, would you still do that? Are you worried about this? Yeah. You know, I know Asanjay, uh, the study came from a scientist at the NIH, actually. It was a letter, I believe, to the New England Journal of Medicine, in which they showed that when you just literally speak, you don't have to cough, you don't have to sneeze, there's an aerosol that goes out just a very short distance, just a couple of feet. And I think that's one of the things that's putting a red flag for people, why people who are completely asymptomatic not coughing, not sneezing, we know now are transmitting the virus, which brings up a number of issues. First, it underscores why you should continue to try and stay six feet away from someone, because that would obviate that right away. The other thing, it brings up the question that you brought up on this show before, 
is the question of whether people should be wearing some sort of a facial uh, cloth uh, covering, not taking masks away from the people who need right. them, like healthcare providers, but that clearly generates that question. So, so I mean, it, it, if it is, if it, it even goes a couple feet, but if it stays airborne for for any time at all, would you would you change your your behavior based on this information, like running outside, for example? No, no, Sanjay, I wouldn't, because I believe that the six foot distance would really obviate that concern. Okay. Because if you look at the video of what that came out of that person's mouth when they spoke, it was sort of like this, but it stayed there for a bit, a couple of feet, and then went down. Let, 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 me, let me just ask a little bit more about these masks, though, because you know we are hearing that uh, uh, you know, we're, we're being told that maybe masks uh, should be recommended in public. I think the president basically said today that if people wanted to wear them, they can. And he said in many ways, a scarf is better, it's thicker. Um, where, where do you stand on that? Do you think there's going to be any official guidelines on that? You know, Sanjay, that is being discussed really very actively. We, we were discussing it actively today in the task force, and I can assure you it's going to be on the agenda tomorrow. You know, and it really gets down to the point where not changing any of the things where we say regarding masks for healthcare workers, but, you know, we say six feet away from each other. Mm. But when you go out for food or you go out to the pharmacy, there's going to be times when, you know, unwittingly you're going to be closer than that. And given the fact that we know that asymptomatic people are clearly transmitting infection, it just makes common sense that it's not a bad idea to do that. It's not going to be 100%. And it's more not to protect you from getting infected, right. but to protect a person from getting infected from you. So if everybody in an altruistic way, said, I'm assuming I'm infected and I don't want to infect anybody else. So when I go out in a situation where I can't guarantee I'm six feet away from someone, why don't I just put some sort of covering there? And that's the thing that some people are already spontaneously doing anyway, but whether or not it's going to be official recommendation, I think is going to come soon one way or the other. Okay. Dr. Fauci, we've got a question from viewers. The first one is from Robin in California. She wants to know, if we've been under stay-at-home orders in California for two weeks, why is the peak still yet to come? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a really great question, Anderson. And the fact is that there is a delay because the way it goes, you have people who get exposed, they get infected, the number of new infections, hospitalizations, critical care, and deaths. So even when you suppress or stabilize the number of new infections, it's still going to take a while before you see a decrease in hospitalizations, a decrease in intensive care, and a decrease in deaths. And in fact, deaths are the last thing that lag. So you could be doing well and having a good effect on mitigation and still see the deaths go up. A guarantee that's exactly what's going to happen in New York City. I want to follow up with that. Uh, you know, the Dr. Murray's chart, uh, you know, shows 80,000 some deaths by by August. The White House projection was 100 to 240,000 uh, in a similar uh, amount of time. That could change if, you know, people really adhere to social distancing. Everyone stays at home. The converse, though, is also true. If all states don't start stay at home orders, and there's uh, and and social and rigorous social distancing those numbers could also increase correct cuz isn't some isn't it your numbers based on the idea that uh, current social distancing remains as it as it is or or right. all states are doing it 
Right on, uh, Anderson. That's it. You're exactly correct. And that's the reason why I, I, you know, I just want to reach out to, to, to the viewers and say, you know, mitigation, if you do it well, is going to be at a number that I don't like and nobody likes. So you got to put your foot on the accelerator to bring that number down because data will always trump models. So what we want to do is we don't care. The model says this, but we want to get it down. But as you say correctly, if you back off and you don't mitigate, there's a possibility that number will go up. And that's the worst possible thing in the world you want to see. And that's the reason why I'm so adamant about when we say we got to follow those guidelines. You really got to take it seriously. And, and probably longer as well, right, uh, Dr. Fauci, because it's really those models uh, are based on the fact that these recommendations stay in place till the end of May, not the end of April. Right. Right. So what we're going to do, uh, Anderson, as we've said many times, we made it a 30 day extension. That was the proper and prudent thing to do. We'll look at it then, because as I've said all the time, the virus is going to determine the timetable, and we've got to make sure we got it under control before we start doing anything prematurely. Uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, we got another viewer question. Uh, uh, Becky McAndrews in Pennsylvania sent in a video. Uh, take a look at this. We are hearing that warmer weather will slow down the virus spread. If so, what are the current temperature trends in the southernmost U.S. regions, and how is the virus trending in those areas? Uh, Dr. Fauci? Yeah, you know, in general, viruses that are respiratory born tend to peter out a bit as you get into the warmer, moist weather because viruses like cold, dry versus warm, moist. But that's not going to guarantee that it's happening because we have parts of our own country, you know, in Florida, mm -hmm. where the weather is warm. I mean, Florida now is what Washington, D.C. is going to be in a few months. So we can't count on that. I think there will be some effect. I think when the country as a country gets into summer, that we're gonna get some positive effect, but we really can't rely on that being the mechanism where we're gonna get out of that. We just gotta assume it's not gonna help and still continue to push on the social distancing. Uh, Jamie Coleman in Denver sent in this video. Take a look. Hi, my name is Dr. Jamie Coleman. I'm a trauma and critical care surgeon. Frontline healthcare workers just like me are at a high risk for contracting COVID-19 but we have been put at an increased risk due to lack of PPE and even reusing PPE. Numerous patterns and suggestions have been circulating the internet as to how to make homemade versions of masks and gowns. What are your thoughts about frontline healthcare workers utilizing these homemade options? Are they better than nothing or could they potentially be harmful? Well, certainly they're better than nothing. I don't think they could be potentially harmful. The only way they could be potentially harmful is if you assume that they're as good as the classic PPE and they're not. I mean, I, I really think we should never, ever, ever get to that point where we're going to have to start making it ourselves. And that's the reason why when, we, when we're at the, at the task force meeting, you know, it's very, very clear that everybody's pushing to make sure no healthcare worker ever runs out of PPE. And I know there's a lot of anxiety out there because I'm on the phone all the time with my colleagues throughout the country, people that I trained with back then, people that I trained who are telling me the same thing, that they're getting anxious because they're getting perilously close to the time when they run out. They haven't run out yet, and I hope they never do. And what we're trying to do through FEMA, through an interaction between the, the state, local, and federal government to make sure that never happens. So although, as, the, as that young, uh, as the physician just said, 
that it's better than nothing, but we hope we never have to get there. Uh, Dr. Fresh, let's see if we can get one more uh, question in here. Bill Graham in Wisconsin sent in another video. Please take a look. So we've seen the graduation of social distancing measures. My question is about the other side. And when we start to come out of this, what the phasing out of social distancing might look like. Will there be yeah. an all clear flag? That's a great uh, question. You know, Dr. Fauci? No, no, no. Sanjay, there's not gonna be an all clear flag. I mean, we better be careful about declaring victory just because you've turned the corner on a curve. When we turn the corner and it goes down, we have to have in place the ability to do the kind of containment that's pristine. Namely, you can you test like crazy, you, t you identify people, you, ad you isolate them, and you do contact tracing. You can't do that when you're in the middle of an explosive situation and you're doing mitigation. But when you get that curve down, it's kind of the restart button. And that's when you really gotta make sure you don't ever let it get out of control again. So it isn't declaring victory, it's okay, we won this round, but let's keep it down. It's a long battle. Dr. Fauci, I appreciate all you're doing, and we Thank know you. your time is, uh, is valuable. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. Up next, we're gonna check in with one of the first volunteers to receive an experimental coronavirus vaccine. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to our CNN Global Town Hall. Let's head to Seattle now to check in with the second person to receive an experimental vaccine for COVID-19. Neil Browning he gave us an update during one of our early town halls. He joins us again tonight. Uh, Neil, it's good to see you. How have you been feeling since we last checked in with you? Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. I'm feeling much the same, completely normal, no side effects or issues so far. Um, Neil, I've been reading about this, this trial somewhat, and I just want to make sure, I know they've explained it to you, I'll make sure I got this right. So there's no live virus in the vaccine you've been given. Um, instead, th this whole vaccine, it uses a process that basically gives you the blueprint for the virus and then directs your own cells to make uh, the proteins of the virus, and that, that hopefully triggers your immune system to respond. Is that correct? Is that, do you know, is that how they explained it to you? Yes, that is how they explained it. it. It's basically teaching your body to make the spike proteins that make up the external shell of the COVID-19 virus, to teach your body how to find it, attack it successfully, so that if you are exposed after the vaccination, hopefully your body will be able to attack it very quickly and get it out of your system. So, so it, the hope is that not only does your body attack these proteins that are made to look like the virus, but that your body creates antibodies, antibodies that will last in your bloodstream for at least a year, if not more, that would be critical for a possible vaccine to be successful, right? Exactly. Otherwise, you would need to go in for boosters if the antibodies only lasted a few months. You'd have to go in every few months to get new boosters. So the idea behind a good vaccination is the longevity of it. I know tetanus lasts about 10 years, mm -hmm. and if you have the chicken pox, most people don't even get it anymore. So the longer you can keep the antibodies in the bloodstream, the better off you are. Hmm. Neil, I think everybody in, probably in the world wants to get some idea of the timeline of this whole thing. I mean, do, do you have a sense of, of, of what the next phase or phases might look like uh, for you or for others, or just, just how long the process might take? So I had my second blood draw, which is being sent off today for uh, anal analysis of the fact that my body did react properly, is creating the antibodies. Mm -hmm. uh, I will get a booster 
on the 14th of April, and that'll follow another four weeks of monitoring. Um, after that, the idea is they should start collating all of the data, see what the 45 of us are able to determine from what our body's reactions are, and hopefully they will move to phase two at that point, which will involve a much larger and broader audience. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks on the front lines, medical doctors and nurses who are taking risks. I mean, you're taking a risk doing something like this. There's a lot of unknown. Um, to those out there who might not think this is as serious or to the states that are still operating, you know, without stay-at-home orders, um, what, what message do you have for, for them about this virus? So, honestly, this needs to be taken very seriously. Washington was where the first recorded case was. Uh, we could look like New York City if we had not had orders from the governor to suspend schools, suspend public events, start rapidly downscaling the number of people allowed in groups in public until eventually we got our shelter-in-place orders. You can believe that this might be an overreaction, but the problem is if you don't overreact, in hindsight, you may see that you should have taken better precautions, but that's not going to help any of those people who died. Yeah. Well, Neil Browning, I really appreciate all you're doing. Thanks for joining um, us. Yeah, it's really, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A reminder at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll shows uh, the questions people are asking. You can tweet us your questions with hashtag CNN Town Hall. We'll be talking to Sanjay and others to answer them throughout the next, uh, uh, well, hour and uh, 20 minutes. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay, and I, uh, we want to bring in Dr. Lena Wen, a veteran of our town halls, an emergency uh, room physician, and Baltimore's former health commissioner. Uh, Dr. Wen, obviously the entire world right now is focused on when there will be a vaccine. Is the trial Neil is involved with promising, do you think? And, and it's certainly not the only one that's happening, right? That's right. It is promising. And I also think it's promising that there are dozens of other potential vaccine candidates. Mm -hmm. But we still have to keep in mind that even with all of that promise, we're still looking at at least a year, maybe a year and a half or more before that vaccine can actually reach the hands of people so that we can start taking them. And in the meantime, it is those social distancing measures, the stay at home orders that you've been talking about, Anderson. That's the single most important thing we can do to prevent ourselves from getting COVID-19 and spreading it to other people. Hmm. Sanju, realistic, I mean, you, you think that timeline a year, year and a half? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Dr. Fauci and others have been very consistent on that. Two things to keep in mind. I mean, sometimes, you know, to create a vaccine, Anderson, it can take 10 years. You know, I mean, there, there have been vaccines that have taken that long. So this is still a fast timeline. And, you know, you brought up with Neil this idea that there's some risk involved. One of the things that they got to be really careful about is that this vaccine doesn't cause something known as sensitization, which basically means that the next time Neil or somebody who, who's been vaccinated uh, sees, the, sees the coronavirus, their body actually overreacts to it. You know, they have a, a huge sort of response, which can sometimes be deadlier than the infection itself. So mm. it's that sensitization thing that they want to make sure doesn't occur right now. And just, it just takes a while to prove that, Anderson. Uh, I want to get to viewer questions. Uh, Sanjay, Karen Rathman in San Francisco sent in this video. Let's take a look. After 14 days, two families have stayed apart and self-quarantined by family at home for the entire 14 days. No member of either family shows signs of having the coronavirus. Is it safe for the two families to be together now in one home rather than continuing to be separated. 
Sanjay, what do you think? I can, you know, that was like one of those SAT questions, right? You have 14 <laughs> days, two families. Traveling 14 miles <laughs> and 12 miles an hour. Yeah, you know, so here's how I would answer that. And, you know, I'm curious if, if Lena would agree with me. But 14 days, that comes up because that's sort of the time between when you've been exposed and when you might develop symptoms. It's not a perfect number because Anderson, as you and I know, we know uh, interviewed somebody who had the virus in their system longer than that. But 14 days is a good number. If they haven't had any symptoms yet, they should be pretty, you know, pretty much in the clear. Um, and I think it's okay to, to be back together. Maybe that'll make quarantining a little bit easier for them. But, you know, every time you move around, every time, you know, you're sort of traveling and things like that, it's an added risk. So what yes, about people who are asymptomatic? I mean, yeah, no, I, I think so even with asymptomatic, this idea that if you if you were going to the, the virus, if it was there between the time of exposure to the time of symptoms, you would have had it in about 14 days. You shouldn't have symptoms or, you know, any spread after that. So it's not perfect. So, but if they really wanted to be together, I think it would be okay. Just be careful with travel or anything else uh, unusual. All right. D Dr. Gordon, here's a question James sent in, uh, which reads, we've heard about the time to wash your hands with soap. How long should the, uh, the contact time be for hand sanitizer? A few drops evaporates in a few seconds. A little more might take 30 seconds. Again, how long to rub hand sanitizer to kill the virus? That's a great question. So the duration and the location of the hand sanitizer should be the same as if you're using soap and water. So at least 20 seconds. And remember to also, the biggest mistake I see people make is they just do hand sanitizer over their palms. But they should also be thinking about it if they were washing their hands. They should be doing the back of their hands, their thumbs. They should be watching Sanjay's great hand washing video and do the same thing for hand sanitizer too. And remember too that now, if you do have soap and water available, that Sanjay that's still better. Nobody washes their hands like Sanjay. Anderson, uh, you said yeah. last time, you said every time you wash your hands, you think of me. Which I do. It's a very interesting <laughs> thing to say. I know, to do. Uh, this is a question that uh, Cheryl sent into CNN.com, which reads, can COVID-19 be contracted by ingesting it on pro produce from the supermarket? Sanjay? Um, so it's, it's interesting. You're, you're not, this is not a foodborne illness. Uh, you know, I just want to make that clear because a lot of people think if you eat this virus because your food's been contaminated, uh, could you get it? You, you can't. I mean, this is a respiratory virus. So it's, it's more a question of the packaging. You know, you just have to think about uh, is there any risk of contamination in other ways. But uh, you're not going to get like a GI type thing from eating the virus. But so, Sanjay, if people feel compelled to sanitize their groceries, we I know just like we did with the hand wash and we asked you to film a, uh, a tutorial. So let's take let's take a look at this. OK, people do need to grocery shop, obviously. Try and limit the number of times you go to the grocery store. That'll just allow you to keep better social distance. And keep in mind, uh, this is not a foodborne illness. You're not going to get it from eating the food. And it's very unlikely you're going to get it from packages. But we do know the virus can live on surfaces, for example, steel and plastic for up to three days. I've used a little glitter here for my kids to show you what the virus might be like. We know they can live on cardboard, for example, up to 24 hours. So what I've done here is I've created a dirty area and a clean area. This was a, a, a suggestion from Dr. Van Wingen up in Michigan. Here's my dirty area. I'm just going to clean all the virus off here. Don't need to do too much. It's a pretty sensitive virus. You don't need to use any kind of specific wipe either. Any household cleaner will do. And then once I'm sure I got this clean, I put this into the clean area. And again, for a cardboard, it's typically going to be closer to 24 hours. Just get all those surfaces pretty well. Once you're confident about that, I get all the glitter off in this case. Then I put this in the clean area. 
Now, one thing I do want to show you, if you are wearing gloves and you don't need to wear gloves, the biggest key is how you take them off. You want to make sure you don't contaminate yourself. So you grab the inside of the glove here and pull it over itself. And then I grab with my finger over here from the inside and pull that over as well. And I drop that into the dirty area also. Finally, I clean my hands one more time. So, but just two things, just to be clear, you don't need to wear gloves, you're saying. Right. And, um, and also, any wipe will do? I mean, you know, like a Kleenex or, or a dish towel or, or needs to have soap on it or? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think you need to have a particular type of wipe, but some sort of cleaner, you know, something like that. Uh, it's, it's a pretty sensitive virus. So it doesn't so. have to be uh, a, um, you know, a, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a Purell kind of thing? No, it doesn't have to be a Purell. I mean, you know, even a spray type cleaner or something like that that you might use on cloth or, or whatever. You know, it, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a virus that, that uh, responds, you know, will, will be affected by that pretty easily. So, you know, that's just an example of what you can do. I, that's, that's what we've started doing in our house and leave packaging outside if you get takeout food and still keep social distance. But, you know, it works pretty well. Okay. Uh, but still, the majority of transmission is person to, per- to person. Right. And, 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 you know, respiratory droplets that are in the air, you can touch surfaces and then touch your eyes, nose or mouth, which right. is why, you know, like I, I think it's a very low likelihood that for it to happen off of, uh, of groceries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think, you know, being cautious, especially at sure. this time is a good idea. Dr. Wen, Oscar in Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania, sent in this video. Let's take a look. Hello, and thank you for all that you do to keep us informed. Due to being bombarded with the virus every day, the number of healthcare professionals that are infected is understandably large. It also seems that they have a disproportionate number of undesirable outcomes. 51 doctors have died in Northern Italy alone. Is there possibly a correlation between the amount of virus that one is exposed to and the severity of symptoms one develops? Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wynn, I, uh, I just want to point out the substance of Oscar's question is accurate. The exact numbers are that at least 69 doctors in Italy have died of the coronavirus, 41 of which were in the, the northern uh, Lombardy region. Um, what's, your, what's your thought on his question, Dr. Wynn? Yeah, it's a really good question. We know that the likelihood of someone getting COVID-19 depends on the type of contact they have. So if they live with someone, they're much more likely to get COVID-19 if that person is infected than through casual contact with someone they met for a couple of seconds. It also stands to reason we know for other viruses that the viral load, Mm. the amount of virus does determine the severity of your illness. And so that could happen in the case of healthcare workers who are exposed just a lot more COVID-19 as a result of their work, that they get more severely ill. And I think that really underscores the need for that PPE that we've been talking about, the personal protective equipment, because healthcare workers are on the front lines treating patients who are really ill with COVID-19, and they really need those masks and gowns and everything more than anyone else. Sanjay, Wayne Whitcomb in Northampton, uh, New Hampshire, sent in this video. Let's watch. I wonder if the surface of our cell phones could be contributing to the spread of the virus as we touch our phones frequently, but probably don't think to disinfect our phones as often as we wash our hands. I haven't seen any discussion or guidance given on this topic and wonder if you think it's a real concern, how should we properly disinfect our phones as part of our routine precautions? Thank you. I love that. I'm obsessed with this uh, dirt on phones. So go ahead, Sanjay. Yeah, we've actually tested your phone yes. before. Anderson. It was, quite, it was quite filthy. Yes, but, <laughs> yeah, I know. 
I mean, he makes a really good point. And look, it's probably the most common surface that we touch is our phone. You don't think about it. We think about our counters and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you know, cleaning the phone and, and wiping the phone just like I showed with some of those cans is a good idea. I've been doing that pretty regularly. And Anderson, let me show you this. This is a hack from the hospitals that the doctors sent me that they are now doing. They'll, they'll put their phone in a Ziploc bag like that and basically, you know, use it uh, throughout the day like that and then be able to take the bag off and then when they take their phone home at night, uh, you know, try and keep it a little bit cleaner. So that's, that's an example of something that's being done in hospitals, but that people can do as well because your phone does end up being this repository of, of all kinds of different pathogens. It's the same thing we do in hurricanes uh, with the yeah. phones, putting them in a Ziploc right. bags so that uh, they don't get uh, wet. Uh, Dr. Wen, another viewer named Wayne sent in uh, this video. Let's take a look. If you're outside and it's breezy or windy, do the six feet guidelines still apply or does it need to be farther because of the wind? And second, if you're jogging or biking and breathing heavy athletically and you pass someone else jogging or biking, is the transmission risk the same as if you pass someone sneezing or coughing? Thank you. I've had those exact questions yeah. while outside running. What do you, what do you think, uh, Dr. Wen? So six or feet is a general guideline. And um, it is possible that and likely that when it's windy that um, the droplets can be transmitted over six feet. And also if somebody is breathing heavily or coughing, sneezing, et cetera, that it could be transmitted more than that too. So I would say use your common sense and try to give as wide of a berth as possible when you're passing someone or when it's windy outside. But remember too that it's also the indoor transmission that matters a lot. I would actually be more concerned when I'm grocery shopping and or in some other enclosed space to give at least six feet distance in those cases too. And, and can I just add as well that if you're sick, you should stay home, right? I mean, if you're coughing and sneezing, you should stay home. So hopefully people who, who are uh, not experiencing those symptoms don't have to, to, to worry about that as much. Mm. Sanjay, uh, Wendy Bloom in West Orange, New Jersey sent in, in this video. Let's listen. My husband and I have both tested positive for COVID-19. I'm managing my symptoms at home, but my husband was admitted to the hospital last Wednesday with pneumonia and difficulty breathing. He's improving slowly and he's not considered critical, but he's still very weak. I'm hearing that many people are relapsing if not careful. How can I be sure that he will not be discharged and sent home before he's really well enough in order to allow for sicker people to be admitted to the hospital? Wendy, thank you for your question, and I hope your husband gets better soon. Sanjay, what do you think? Well, this is this is a uh, it's a really important question and a tough situation. I can understand the the uh, the concern there. I mean, look, there's no question we're in an unusual time and unprecedented. I mean, we want to make space for, for patients in the hospital who really need to be there. But it is true that sometimes people can have this sort of ups and downs in terms of their, their clinical course. I think, you know, the, the key is that even if he does come home, the chances are he's probably going to continue to recover. And statistically, that's very likely to happen. If he has any signs, he's getting worse. So symptoms getting worse, fever going up, chest, uh, chest discomfort, any kind of shortness of breath. Uh, there's, there's a list of symptoms that should take him back to the hospital. Again, I'm not suggesting this is easy. It's challenging because now you're worried because he's at home. But there are things that you can sort of watch out for to, to feel like you can uh, take a little bit of control over that situation. Uh, Dr. Wayne, Andrew Sutton in Canada sent us uh, a video. I want, I want to play that. If a person within an apartment building gets COVID-19, 
Can the virus spread from that unit to other units through the plumbing or vents like SARS did? Dr. Wen? So there is no evidence that COVID-19 can be transmitted over long distances through HVAC, heating systems, and so forth. However, as was mentioned regarding SARS, it is possible that if there are defective systems, defective plumbing systems, as an example, that there could be transmission that way. And so buildings should make sure that they check their exhaust systems, their pipe systems. And I think for all of us, who, all the people who live in apartment buildings, there are additional steps that you could take as well, including don't get into crowded elevators. Actually try to make sure that you're not in an elevator with someone. Um, these surfaces that are commonly touched like handrails and buttons and door handles, make sure to wash your hands very well after you touch those surfaces. And also you can increase your own ventilation, especially as the weather is getting warmer by opening the window. Sanjay Barbara Clifford in Chicago sent a video. Take a look. Hi, I'm a flight attendant and we are still considered essential workers during the coronavirus outbreak. I live with my adult daughter who is 31 years old and I'm wondering once I come home from work, what precautions should I be doing so I don't infect the house or risk her catching anything? Are there any guidelines for all of us essential workers to be following once we make our way back home or into our homes? Sanjay? Be before I give this answer, I just want to remind people, you know, this, this is going to come to an end at some point. I mean, this is not how life is going to be for, forever. But for you specifically, Barbara, you know, when you come home, being able to, to quarantine yourself within your home, if that makes sense. I, I realize that the home is sort of quarantining, but even within the house, if you can find a space that is yours, separate out, you know, cutlery, utensils, things that you're using, have a separate bathroom, again, if possible, those things will help, at least for, for the time being. It's certainly showering as soon as you yeah, get home. That's right, and, and washing your clothes, things like that, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Wen, thank you so much, as always, really appreciate it. And Thanks I want to thank everybody who sent in questions and videos. Uh, more, we'll have more uh, questions being answered uh, in the next hour. More of our global town hall just ahead. An expert from the World Health Organization will answer more of your questions. Plus, we're going to hear from New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo. He'll be joining us. Also, Chris Cuomo will be joining us. All ahead. Stay tuned. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome again to our CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. This is our fifth town hall. In just the last hour, cases and the cases have risen and the number of dead in the United States has also increased. There are now 243,453 positive cases in America and 5,926 people have died. That's more than 1,000 new cases and 76 more people who have died. In this second hour, we're we'll going to be joined by New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo and talk about the fight to secure ventilators for his state and also about states unlike his that still don't have uh, state home orders in effect. Also, we'll talk to Robert Kraft, owner of the uh, New England Patriots. His Patriots have helped secure more than a million masks for Massachusetts and 300,000 more for New York. Also, we'll talk to experts who are going to answer more of your questions about the medical and psychological impact of this pandemic. Now, usually at 9 p.m., Chris Cuomo is anchoring his program. Of course, he's now suffering, as you probably know, from the coronavirus. Uh, so before we do anything this hour, we want to check in with uh, Chris. How you doing, Chris? Chris? How, yeah, how you I'm feeling? Doing, 
I'm, I'm doing well. The beast comes at night. You know, as we know, the healthcare workers uh, have taken to calling the virus the beast. Uh, I understand why. My fever has gone up a couple of degrees in like the last 30 minutes. Nights are tough. And I've learned something that I didn't know before. Uh, it is responsible journalism to say that 80% of people who get this uh, statistically wind up okay, meaning they don't go to the hospital, they get through it. It is not humanly responsible, uh, though, from an ethical perspective. Now that I'm one of the anointed and these people reach out to me, you suffer uh, when you have this at home unless you are ridiculously lucky statistically and maybe karmically as well. I can't tell you how many stories I've had of people who have had a one, over 100, 102 fever for 8, 10, 12 days. And just to tell you what kind of toll that can take, look, it's not about life or death. I don't mean it that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the show. I'm not looking to scare people. I'm trying to do the opposite. I've lost 13 pounds in three days. Wow. Now, I'm a big guy. I started off at 230 pounds. My wife is feeding me uh, like, you know, we were still in the dating phase. You know, so it's not like I'm not, I'm hurting for nutrition. Um, I'm eating and drinking constantly. I'm just sweating it out and it's the sickness. So yeah, 80%, we're going to make it through. But the idea that it's easy, so you can be nonchalant, that is so misleading, fellas. That I now know for fact. Are you saying she fed you better in the dating phase? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. that's a whole that's other a whole, story. That's a whole other situation, so, Anderson. I can't, yeah. uh, that'll take us a long time. All right. All right. Chris, I, I just need to say for the record, I think Anderson agree with me. We, we, we had suggested you not work right now. I mean, I know you, you're, you're incapable of not working and, and talking about this, but just for the record, we, we, we did suggest that. I do have a question, though, for you, because, you know, you're a journalist, and now you're dealing with this uh, for real, for real time. How, and you're, you're probably always trying to figure out how to, how to take care of yourself and, and digging like a journalist does. What, what are you learning? I mean, you're really in it now. Have you learned anything that works for you? Uh, here's what I know, uh, that the chicken soup is not just anecdotal. You look online, even if you go to JAMA, you know, the Journal of American, uh, you know, go to the Medical Association Journal. The, that has worked for me, I believe. I, I believe that it has helped me lower my fever in periods. Um, I have been counseled to try to endure fever as much as I can because the fever is the body's fighting mechanism. Um, now, what I've also learned is there is so much BS on the internet that people are trying to peddle as cures, fake pills, uh, fake tonics, uh, these mixtures of things that are actually decent ingredients. Vitamin C, vitamin D are, are great supplements to have, but 10,000, 20,000 units they want you to take of this. You're not gonna overdose, but you know, it can be really hard on your system. People are selling a lot of lies and people are buying them up because of the desperation, and I get it, but they don't work. Uh, there's no proof in any of them. And I think we have to be very careful about people preying on desperation. So what is, you know, what do you anticipate tonight? I mean, you, you talked earlier uh, with, with the governor, with your brother, uh, and we revealed that he came to you in a ballet costume with a wand uh, during your, uh, your, the bad night you had yeah. last night. What does a night look like for you? You said your fever is spiked. What do you think your fever is about right now? Well, I can probably tell you if you want, but it's probably around 101-ish. Now, I run a little cool. My normal temperature is 97.6, not 98.6. Um, so even when I'm at 99, that would not be a big deal for most people. Um, but for me, I'm already warm. So what happens is at night, you know, your body temperature goes up in the late afternoon anyway. This is, the, you know, this is uh, anybody with a kid, uh, you know, knows that dance. But uh, I will get pain in my face now, headaches, uh, profuse sweating, 
literally my vision in my left eye is a little blurry from pressure, from sinus pressure and some manifestation of the virus. I've talked to several clinicians and experts in this. They've all said it's a very common thing. Um, and then you can't sleep because you have a fever and you have these wicked phantasmagorical experiences that are not dreams. When I say I saw my father sitting on the end of the bed, I would have gladly raised my hand as an affiant and testified to it under oath easily. Um, why? Because the fever, because your body's all screwed up. So what I'm saying is, yeah, I'm going to make uh, fun of some of this stuff, but it isn't funny when you're living it for people. And I do not mean to dismiss their pain. I'm just trying to help people not be too spooked because everybody's so spooked about getting this that if I get it, what will happen? You'll survive. But at the same time, if you think you're going to take the social distancing lightly or you're going to be nonchalant with any of the beautiful things that Sanjay laid out in that video, I am asking them to send me a copy of your video, uh, Sanjay, because Christina has been going through those protocols in the house. You know, she's taking care of all of us right now. And it's so important to do everything the right way. Otherwise, you wind up exposing yourself. But I'm just telling you, Anderson, you'd make it. But it's so hard that to say it's nothing, don't worry about it, right. is totally disingenuous because you are going to experience things you likely never have. I'm glad you said because part of me has thought, you know, I'd rather just get this now and get it over with. Um, mm. And I mentioned that to uh, my doctor the other day, and my doctor was like, that's idiotic. You, you don't want to get this at all, obviously. Look, I wish I would have gotten it sooner, but, you know, so I could have told this stuff to people a month and a half ago, and we could have broken this bubble of everything's going to be okay, you know. And obviously, I'd always rather have it than any of the people in my family. And thank God they're still, non, you know, they're still asymptomatic. Uh, but you don't want it, brother. I, I tell you that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We, we talk about, you know, uh, the numbers of people who lived and people who have died. But, you know, this is the in-between part, which can be pretty brutal. I mean, for, you know, Chris, it's interesting because obviously you're here talking to us. You're at your brother's briefing today. He said that um, he thinks that you having the virus is, is going to be a great public service. And I, I think he was being honest. I don't think he was being ironic when he said that. But I mean, what, is it is that, is that your goal here? I mean, right now, talking to us even? Yeah, it's my only goal. Um, because in between doing this hit or doing my show, sorry about uh, the phone call, the, uh, you know, we, we have a gate in, at the house that we're renting. So every time somebody drops something off, the thing goes off. Sorry about it. Anyway, I can't let anybody in the house. You know what I mean? They can't come through the gate mm -hmm. because I don't want to get them to expose anything. Um, in between the hits and in between when I'm doing the show, I am a waste. I sleep probably 10 hours of the day uh, if I can, you know, in and out. I try to walk and do these breathing exercises because I'm petrified of getting pneumonia. Um, I have a really good friend who had the same symptoms I did. She's every bit as strong, if not in better shape than I am. And she had three, four days good. And now she's got this thing attached to her face that I never want to see in person, let alone have. And it scared the hell out of me because uh, the unknown is frightening. And you lose any illusions about yourself real fast. And I'm hoping that people see, all right, he's making it, but he's not full of it either. He's not telling me this is some cakewalk um, because that would be a lie. And uh, I want people to know that you can deal with it if you get it. Don't be so afraid of this virus that it puts you into a panic and that it keeps you from making smart decisions. Conversely, don't make reckless decisions either because you think you'll breeze through. I haven't heard of anybody who has. And, and uh, Chris, I just quickly, I know we're running out of time, but you, you I mean, again, because I want people to realize that, and we talk even after the show, so we're, people are checking in on you because, you know, people are really worried. But you also have an oxygen monitor as well. Is that right? I mean, you are yeah. checking your own oxygenation. Yes. Uh, and what, and what is that for? 
So it's really important, uh, Anderson, thank you. Uh, the, it gives you two measurements. You put your finger in it, it's an infrared. You're like sold out now. Uh, people sent me a bunch. I'm trying to get them at the office so I can give them to people. People have been so generous, man. I got to tell you, when we say that in the worst of times, the best of us comes out, it is so much more true than it is just trite. And what it does is you put your finger in it and you have to have warm fingers. Uh, and as my doctor explained it to me um, in a very funny way, she said, she, you should take it the way uh, somebody takes a marriage proposal. Never go with the first offer. Always work it a little bit. So when you put your finger in it, uh, you'll get your blood oxygen level. You need it to be above 94 or so. But it may not be because you're it's infrared and it's not precise. So you do it a few times and it tells you what the percentage of oxygenated blood is that you have. And if it's below 94, you're starting to get into an area of potential distress and it gives you that and your heartbeat. The heartbeat is not as sensitive unless you're in a labored breathing situation. But I check it eight, nine times a day. Hmm. Um, Chris, we wish you the best. And I hope tonight's not uh, not as bad as last night. And I hope if I have to have somebody dancing around doing funny things, it's neither of you two guys, because I don't want to have to have that image in my head. Now, listen, thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell people it's not a cakewalk, but we can get through it. And if you don't have people around you to take care of you the way I'm blessed to have, reach out to people who you know who have this. Do whatever you can to help them. And just to be clear, I mean, you you don't know necessarily how you got this. I mean, you were doing as as much as anybody on social distancing and, and stuff, right? Um, probably no, because of the job. You know, I mean, I was right. talking to a lot of people and going to places, uh, and I was not thinking that I wouldn't get this. I thought I would get it, um, but I was not going out of my way to be a fool about it. You know, right. I mean, I was trying to do things that are reasonable within the lines of what our work is, especially given the situation I'm in with the state right now. Like when I do have a couple of good hours, I'm still trying to do help with procurement. Uh, for the state, because they really are fighting state by state, which is so stupid uh, to get the, infor- the the equipment that they need. So I don't know how I got it. And most people don't, Anderson. And we're so far behind on testing. We're telling ourselves these lies about testing. We're nowhere near where we need yeah. to be. And we're not going to be in this wave. So nobody knows how they got it, really. Yeah. Uh, Chris, thank you very much. Call you Appreciate later. It. Chris is a, a perfect example of how the virus is spreading. No known contacts following uh, as much as possible social distancing, health guidelines, still contracting it. As we've been reporting, there are now more than one million cases worldwide. If you have questions, tweet them at the hashtag CNNTownHall. At the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll. It's a good time to bring in Dr. Maria uh, Van Kerkov, who is the technical lead for COVID-19 for the World Health Organization. Doctor, thanks so much for being back with us. When we last spoke with you on March 12th, there were more than 100,000 cases worldwide. Tonight, just three weeks later, more than a million cases worldwide. Overall, what's the biggest message you want people around the world to know right now about this virus? Well, thanks for having me back. Um, sorry if I'm whispering. I have a, a baby next door, so I'm trying to be quiet. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, uh, we, uh, as you said, the, the case numbers are increasing, um, and, and they're increasing in a lot of places across the globe. Um, my message is similar to what I said on March 12th. There's a lot that we can do to actually control this and to bring transmission down. There's a lot that individual viewers themselves can do to try to protect themselves from getting infected. And there's a lot governments and leaders can do to protect their citizens. Um, We know what works in terms of finding the virus and and looking for cases. Um, The first thing we have to do is be able to know where the virus is um, so that we can take measures to actually reduce the possibility of people transmitting the virus from one person to another. Um, And so there's a lot that that can be done. And I think that's there's hope. And I think people need to understand that we have learned a lot from many countries um, in Asia. We're learning a lot from countries in Europe right now. Um, and there's hope. 
there's a lot that needs to be done. It's not going to be an easy fight. And I just heard uh, your previous guest, uh, Chris, describe what this actually means to be infected. Um, it's going to be tough, but we can get through it. There's a big discussion going on, Doctor, right now uh, in the United States around masks. Uh, as you may have heard, the, the mayors of New York and Los Angeles now urging uh, you know, their millions of residents to wear some sort of face covering in public. Uh, the Trump administration seems to be moving towards some similar sort of recommendation. I've looked closely at the World Health Organization's guidance on this. I'm wondering, what, 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 do, you, what do you think? Is this the right direction to be going in? So thanks for mentioning the guidance. So a lot of people hear uh, the Director General, Dr. Mike Ryan, and I on the press conferences, and they hear what we say there, and we, we highlight some, some key aspects. But we have a whole series of guidance that's much more detailed that's online, as does U.S. CDC. So um, there's a, there is a significant debate that's out there, but scientists like to debate, so that's nothing new. Um, what we know um, is that what we recommend is that people who are sick wear masks, medical masks I'm referring to, not N95 masks or those respirators. Those must be reserved for our frontline workers who are caring for patients. Uh, we recommend that people who are sick to wear a medical mask because we know that people who have the virus can transmit through mm -hmm. these droplets. Um, and so that's important. We also need people who are caring for those who are sick to be wearing the masks. Um, and so we know because it's called source control, which means that we're preventing for onward transmission. Um, but we have to prioritize the use of masks for frontline workers. If that's one thing I can stress, um, to medical masks, respirators, gloves, gowns, these are people who are putting their lives on the line to help us uh, to care for other people, and they must be protected. So for other people, I mean, the president has said, you know, people who wear scarves or bandanas, things, would that be something the World Health Organization would suggest? So we're constantly looking at evidence all the time. Um, for, for the use of masks for anything that's related to this and related to health issues. Uh, we're talking with uh, scientists around the world, including US CDC scientists. They're, they're such a strong partner of ours um, to, about this issue uh, and the use of this. And we're looking to see what is what works in terms of preventing people from being infected or for onward transmission. Um, we're constantly looking at what's coming out. There's a lot of studies around uh, influenza uh, we have very few studies around COVID-19, but it's a respiratory pathogen, so we make some assumptions that they can be transmitted in a similar way. Um, we're looking at what will work um, and making some recommendations for the general public. Um, what I can say is that the judgment needs to be risk-based. It needs to be based on what is the potential exposure that that individual will have in whatever they're going to be doing. It relates to where the virus is. It relates to their vulnerability, you know, if, if they have a risk of, of developing, you know, some more severe disease. Um, so, so any of those decisions that governors and, and presidents and, and heads of states and leaders make need to take that into account. You were part of the World Health Organization team that traveled to China earlier this year. Independent experts and officials in the Trump administration uh, and others are, are questioning the official numbers coming out of China. Are you confident about the information from Chinese authorities on the number of cases they were handling? You know, I, I question numbers all over the world. Um, that's what we do. Uh, what we're working on is with, with countries having the ability to find cases, test cases. Um, and the only way we can do that is actually if we're looking for them. Um, so there's reporting that's coming out through the, the identification of uh, testing of suspect cases and their contacts who develop symptoms. Um, but it depends on the testing strategy in each country. 
Um, what we're trying to do is, is you, you mentioned we're almost at a million or we've just reached a million cases. Um, it depends on how each country uh, takes those steps to look for cases. I know I spent two weeks in China, as you mentioned, and saw what they were doing to actually look for those cases, how aggressive they were in looking for them. Um, in addition to looking for known cases, they actually went out into the communities and tested uh, other samples, uh, respiratory disease samples, which a number of other countries are doing as well. But it is difficult to interpret all of these numbers uh, in terms of where each country is in its trajectory. Um, some countries are have, you're seeing very large growth, but even in the United States, um, transmission is not even. You know, you have differences at, at state level and subnational levels. Um, so uh, it's important that that people are looking. All right, let's turn to viewer questions. Uh, this one actually, the first one actually is about China. Um, the question is, why is China cleaning the streets and store walls and we are not doing that, meaning in the United States, do they know something that we don't? So we don't recommend the, the spraying. Um, so be, I, don't know, I don't know exactly why each country is deciding to do that. Um, some of them are doing that, others are not. Um, what we know about this virus is how it transmits and how it transmits through droplets, through close contact. Um, through the touching of fomites uh, or surfaces, contaminated surfaces, uh, which can be cleaned with, with, with simple disinfectants. But the virus is not lingering in the air. It's not you know, out on the streets. Um, you have to be in close contact with one another. So cleaning those, those surfaces right around where patients is, that's important. Uh, let, let's get to another uh, viewer question. This is from Jennifer, and she writes in this, uh, I currently have COVID-19 and believe after 16 days that I'm finally coming out of it, I understand that I have antibodies and I'm not likely to be reinfected. However, I am wondering about the possibility of a mutated version strain resurfacing in the fall or next year that I may be susceptible to. Um, what do you think, doctor? Well, I'm glad that Jennifer is feeling better and I'm glad that she's getting out of that. And I think that's an important message for your viewers um, is that people who do get infected with this, many will have mild disease and they will recover just fine. Um, and there are people who will have more, more severe disease and that's where we need to make sure our frontline workers are cared for so that they can care for patients who are sick. Um, in terms of the virus, the virus is stable um, and, and we haven't seen um, changes. We see normal changes in viruses as, as all viruses change just slightly. Um, what, we don't have great data right now on an immune response. Uh, we've seen some preliminary data which suggests that people will have a, a strong immune response. Um, we're, only, we're only in our fourth month right now, so there are many people, more than 100,000 people who've recovered. Uh, we need to follow those individuals over time to see how long that immunity or that immune response will last. Jerry King from uh, Gretna, Louisiana, sent in uh, this video question. Let's watch. If an overactive immune response is causing coronavirus deaths, would an immune-suppressing drug like Prograf benefit by slowing overactive response to the virus? Doctor? That, yeah, that's a good question. So that, that's, um, there's a number of therapeutics that uh, we're looking at right now, as, as, as you know. Um, these medications, um, some of which are, get, are repurposed for, for COVID-19, um, are under evaluation for COVID-19. Uh, they need to be evaluated in, in appropriate trials, clinical trials, so that we know which drugs work um, in an appropriate setting. Um, at the present time, we don't have any drugs that are specific for COVID-19. Um, there are medications that are being used to alleviate some symptoms, but in terms of treating COVID-19, we don't have any drugs that are currently approved for that. But there are a number of clinical trials that are ongoing, 
and we should have results of those uh, in the next month or two um, or, or a few months so that we can actually come out and say this works and this is safe and this can help people. And, 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 you know, that sort of raises this question, doctor, you know, is it, you know, when people get really sick or even die from this, is it because of the virus itself, the infection, or is it because of this, the body's response to it, the inflammatory response to it? I think maybe that's what he was sort of driving at as well. Yeah, so we're working with our clinicians across the globe to really understand how people are dying um, and what they're dying from. Um, because as this virus invades the body and, and affects different different parts of the body, um, some people will, as, as you know, some people will have infection and they won't develop severe disease, um, and some people do. So we need to really understand why that is, mm. and that needs to be done through these studies that are, that are happening in hospitals right now and what, what is actually happening and causing people to die through multi-organ failure or through sepsis. Um, those are critical questions right now, um, and, and that information is still being gathered. Dr. Van Kerkhove, uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Earlier, Dr. Fauci uh, said in our town hall that the whole country should be under a stay-at-home order. We'll talk to Governor Andrew Cuomo about that. His state, of course, is this state is at the very heart of the pandemic. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. This is our fifth CNN Global Town Hall. We'll get answers to your questions ahead. First, though, we want to welcome New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to the discussion. It's uh, no overstatement to say that his state is dealing with far by the heaviest burden of the pandemic in the United States so far. Um, Governor Cuomo, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but outside Elmer, Elmhurst Hospital just a couple hours ago, the FDNY showed up with fire trucks, sirens blaring to show their support for doctors and nurses and everyone working to save people's lives. Um, I, I just want to show the, the, the video while we're talking about this. I'm wondering what your reaction is when you see something like this. I mean, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the midst of this. Uh, well, Anderson, you have to remember, uh, in, the, in the darkest of days, New Yorkers shine the brightest, right? Uh, we went through 9-11, uh, and that changed us, as I believe this situation is going to change us. Uh, but we dealt with terrible advers adversity, we dealt with loss, we dealt with pain, we cried, we went to funerals, and we came together united stronger than ever before. Uh, and that's the New York instinct. That's the American instinct. Uh, we have a problem, we rally, and we rally together. And that's what you're seeing at Elmhurst Hospital, but you're seeing it all across uh, the state. You, you said today that New York only has six days left before it runs out of ventilators. We also learned this week that the national stockpile has been depleted. Where, where are you going to get more ventilators from? I mean, what, where, where does this go? Well, look, we're going to a place we've never been to before, right? Uh, this comes down to a very simple proposition. Can your health care system deal with the number of incoming at the apex of the curve? That's all this comes down to. It's a, an organizational question. Can your hospital system deal with it? And there are three elements. It's beds, it's supplies, and it's equipment. Beds, frankly, are the easiest to get. It's the, the staff, and can the staff keep up with it with all the physical uh, exhaustion and the emotional exhaustion. 
And do you have the equipment? And the key piece of equipment is the ventilator, something I never heard of uh, a couple of months ago, but now I know intimately well. Uh, and these ventilators are very, it's very simple. A person comes into the ICU unit, they need the ventilator or they die. It, it's that basic a proposition. We have about six days at the current burn rate of ventilators. Uh, and B, you can't buy any more ventilators. This state had purchased 17,000 ventilators, more than any other state in the nation, uh, and they never got delivered because they're all coming from China and 50 states are competing. And uh, my, I suspect that it's been a bidding war and uh, the highest order won. Uh, but we can't get any more ventilators. So we have a very elaborate plan on what to do if we run out of ventilators. Uh, we're going to move to splitting of ventilators where there's a protocol. One ventilator can handle two tubes, two patients. We're going to use BiPAP machines and retrofit BiPAP machines. We're using the anesthesia machines uh, as ventilators. We've canceled all the non-elective surgery, so that's freeing up ventilators. And then we took an inventory of all the ventilators in every hospital in the state of New York, and I'm going to redeploy the ventilators to the places that need them. You know, you, you and I talked on the, on the phone, Governor, I remember before one of your, your press conferences, and even at that time, you know, we were, I think we were struck by the fact that this was kind of known, right, and predicted at least from models how many ventilators would be needed for some time. And now you're in a situation where you have to sort of bid against other states. I know you have other, other things up your sleeve in terms of splitting and BiPAPs and stuff, but now you have to bid against other states for these, these very, very uh, uh, necessary pieces of equipment. Um, everybody on the planet wants these ventilators now, so how is this gonna work? I mean, the prices go up. Uh, how is this gonna work for you? Yeah, it doesn't work. That's how it works, Sanjay. It doesn't work. Uh, 50 states bidding for ventilators. China is basically the only company that has ventilators available. Uh, the president's working with General Motors, Ford, et cetera, to create more ventilators. But that's, for me, down the road uh, and not really relevant because I have one of the shortest curves, right? My apex is as soon as seven days to 21 days. So uh, a company tooling up and producing a ventilator in, in two months doesn't do anything for me. Uh, but that's, nobody would have designed the system where 50 states scramble to get their own equipment. The, and by the way, in the cruelest irony, uh, you have to buy it from China. Right. They're making the gowns, they're making the gloves, they're making the ventilators. Uh, and then the federal government, FEMA, when they got involved, they're buying from China. So you can't buy a ventilator. Uh, you're, it's, when I started buying the ventilators, they were about $22,000. They then went up to about $50,000 and you just can't get them. So that the horse is out of the barn on that. Obviously, nobody would say that this was the best way to do it. Hindsight 2020, if you could go back and redesign it to have 50 states uh, compete. But that's where we are. The, the, I don't want to get you in a tit for tat with the president, but he, he has been critical of New York's response to the virus again today, saying New York unfortunately, unfortunately got off to a late start. You should have pushed harder, essentially saying uh, stop complaining. Uh, now, I know a lot of states still haven't done it, but in retrospect, should these stay-at-home orders, should they have gone into effect earlier? What do you make of the president 
saying that, you know, the, that calling people complainers, essentially. Yeah, look, I don't want to get into a tit for right. tat with the president. The truth is, there's been uh, no governor who's been more critical of the president in the past. Uh, and there's been no governor who this president has attacked more than me <laughs> in the past either. So there's an, an equity there. But in this situation, I think we have a very honest relationship. He's been helpful to New York. And I said, look, if you partner with us and help New York, uh, I'll call it the way it is. And if you don't help New York, I'll call it the way it is. Today, the president was very helpful uh, actually converting our Javits Center, which is 2,500 beds, to a COVID uh, facility. I called him this morning. He got it done by the afternoon. So kudos to the president. But uh, this is not about what states uh, could have done. I, I ordered 17,000 ventilators. I only have 4,000 ventilators in the state. Uh, I ordered 17,000 ventilators. Uh, states cannot perform this task, right? Uh, emergency management rule 101 is defer to the localities. Let the states handle it. Let the localities handle it. That's why Hurricane Katrina, if you remember, President Bush said the mayor messed up because the mayor was supposed to handle Hurricane Katrina. That's rule one. Mm. Rule two is, yes, the locals handle it unless they cannot handle it. And then the federal government handles it, right? I did federal response uh, during the Clinton administration. And we did hurricanes, floods, Midwest floods, LA earthquake. The local handles it unless they can't handle it. This is not a situation that states can handle. A state's emergency management response, we do moderate hurricanes, moderate flooding, et cetera. But we don't do public health uh, emergencies. A state doesn't have the capacity. I have a 50,000 bed health system. I don't have the resources to be able to build an additional 50,000 beds just in case there's a public health emergency and a pandemic every 10 years. You know, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but I think that's all hindsight. Uh, look forward. There is, there is an opportunity here that this is not nationwide at one time, okay? This has a different curve in different places. New York has the first curve, right? And every locality is, is watching their own personal curve and getting prepared for the apex of that curve to make sure the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. But New York has one curve. New Orleans has a second curve. Detroit has a third curve. And it's like watching a slow-moving hurricane across the country where you know the path that it's taking. Why not deploy the national resources and just stay ahead of the hurricane? Just stay ahead of the hurricane. Mm. Help New York because we have the first curve. Help me with ventilators. Help me with staff. The top of the apex is only two or three weeks, Dr. Sanjay can tell you. Uh, average length of stay on a ventilator is 17 days. I hit that apex, I'm on the other side of that apex, I'll pack up everything we have and I'll move to the next place in the country that can help. There is a rolling deployment that is possible that says not everyone has to have everything. 
we will bring support staff and bring equipment and stay one step ahead of the hurricane. Has that, that message been received? I think received is at the a White better House? way to deal with this. I mean, it, or, or do, do other people buy into that? Well, look, I don't know an alternative strategy. You can't buy a ventilator. You can't buy PPE equipment. You can't buy a gown. You can't buy a hospital bed. You tell me an alternative. I just don't see it. Now, it has to be uh, nationally organized, but I'll tell you, Anderson, the American people are there. I said at a press briefing, I do these press briefings in the morning, I asked for uh, public health volunteers. 20,000 people from across this country volunteered to come help New York State. Public health professionals, 20,000 in two days. Mm. They want to help. They get it. By the way, when, you, when we have a disaster like a hurricane or a flood or something, this is what we do. We call it mutual aid, right? So if New York has a hurricane and there are down power lines and we have no power service, that's when you see those utility trucks driving all, all across the country on the highways, right? Uh, if Florida has a problem, I send my entire utility crew to Florida. If Arizona has a problem, I send it to Arizona. And vice versa. If we see that common logic there and that commonality, why wouldn't you do it here where you have lives on the line? Mm. Good, Governor, uh, we want to talk about masks in a second, but I also want to just right now want to bring in Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. Um, his team partnered with Massachusetts to purchase at least 1.2 million N95 masks. Kraft also purchased another 300,000 protective masks for, for New York State. Robert Kraft, welcome. Thank you for what you did. Tell us how this, how you decided to do this, how it came about. Well, we, uh, the governor of our state uh, has a close relationship with my eldest son, who's the chair of the board of Mass General, a great hospital. And um, uh, he asked uh, if there was a way that they could get these masks that they had bought in China back to America. And um, he's a great governor. He's doing a great job. And we happen to have a little plane uh, that we use for our team that was idle. And um, we put it together and had our team uh, work with a lot of individuals and flew to China. And um, with the help of companies like Martin Lau at Tencent and the ambassador and people on the ground and our crew who flew. Uh, they just went in there and they did a great job. And, and you're giving 300000 to New York as well. Well, what happened there, I've been watching Governor Cuomo over the last few weeks, and I just think he's done an outstanding job. He's at the epicenter of this crisis. And uh, he has a calming way about him and he brings confidence. And I thought his and I have a personal tie to New York City. Uh, Columbia was good to me and gave me a full scholarship as a kid. I love the city. I love the people there. I don't I don't think what's going on is is something any of us could imagine. So I spoke to the governor and um he, he requested that, is there a way we could get some of these masks uh, for New York? And um, 
I spoke to our governor and he said, we're bringing him back. He'd love to help Governor Cuomo. I love it, a Republican governor, a Democratic governor, putting the country first. And we agreed, we agreed to buy them and give them to the people of the city of New York just to try to bring some hope and goodwill and let people know we're trying to bring everything together and generate some good feelings and also to give Governor Cuomo confidence like he brought those workers, the fact that they responded, we wanted to know that people like ourselves also care about the city of New York and the state, the, the government that functions there. Governor, I imagine that's a good call you got in, in all the days of probably you get a lot of bad calls. That was probably a good call you got. Do you know what you're going to do with the mass? Where they're going to go? I think that, Anderson, I think that was the only good call I've gotten in about 10 days. Uh, Mr. Kraft is a special man, and uh, what he did here is just pure generosity uh, and goodness. Uh, Governor Baker, my colleague uh, in Massachusetts, he's a good friend. We have a good working relationship. But even, even for Governor Baker, for a governor to say, uh, I'll help another state besides my state, that really is, says something about uh, his character. So it's heartwarming. It's much needed. As everybody knows, these masks are, uh, are so rare and so necessary. So it was not only a beautiful gesture and kindness, and I thank Mr. Kraft and I thank Governor Baker, but uh, it's also much needed. You have, uh, you have nurses who are afraid, frankly, that they don't have the proper mm -hmm. PPE. So this is, this is a big deal. And, and uh, well, I ended of uh, six o'clock tonight, it got unloaded. We have a big tractor trailer loaded with 300,000 masks. They'll be coming to the Jaffet Center late tomorrow morning. What, was this was this challenging, Mr. Kraft, to, uh, to to go to fly into China? And and uh, I mean, I'm not sure what the status of the of the travel restrictions are or anything. I mean, a lot of people I know are trying to help, but just to get it done, to get into China, get these masks come out. How, how challenging was it? Just the the process of that. Well, I like to think I'm 35. I'm a little older. <laughs> this probably was the most challenging. Uh, operation our organization and team ever had to do. It was there was a lot of red tape, but a lot of people cooperated. Uh, we have three governors. We had a council from China, the Tencent people, our crew who flew probably more hours than they should have, uh, but they knew how important it was. And you know, it's just it's like doing your job and never taking time off when something's really important. And the team effort, and I'll just tell you, the response we've gotten from America that when our plane came back, people are looking for good things. Mm. We are, there's so many great people, and this is the greatest country in the world. It's time for us to rally together and solve these kinds of issues. Um, here, here. Um, hey, Governor, let me just ask you, uh, would you recommend for New Yorkers who, you know, go outside tomorrow, should they be wearing some sort of covering, some, I don't want to say mask, because I don't want to, you know, imply that you don't want to do anything that takes away from the front line, from the, the medical workers, the police who need masks. What do you, what's your recommendation on that? Uh, look, what the, uh, what the scientists will tell you is that if, unless the fabric has a certain density, uh, the virus can get through. 
But look, it, uh, it couldn't hurt unless it gives a person a false sense of security, right? Don't think because you're wearing a bandana over your mouth that uh, you're, you're immune. It could help if someone is, uh, has the virus and it could block some exhaling, sneezing, etc. It couldn't hurt. It's not exactly fashion forward, but it couldn't <laughs> hurt uh, from a public health uh, point of view. Fashion forward. I know, Governor, you're, you're, uh, I don't think you're one to be concerned about fashion forward, so wisely so. Uh, Governor Cuomo, well, thank you. Uh, Robert Kraft? Could, could I just say one thing? Sure. I think that your brother, Chris, has you know, been inspirational, and him being vulnerable and speaking the way he has is, is a great service to the country. And I, I want to thank your family for being willing to share that and bringing us in the bedroom. And it's a great lesson for everyone that thinks we can be cavalier about this. No, thank you, Bob. And I, I agree 100%. You know, the day he found, my brother Chris, the day he found out that he was uh, positive, that night he did the show. I mean, you want to talk about guts and courage. And he said to me, first thing he said to me is, you know, this could actually be a public service because I can show people who are so afraid of this mysterious disease uh, what actually someone actually living with it goes through and demystify it. And he's so right there because, you know, we're fighting a virus. We're fighting fear and panic and anxiety as much as we're fighting this virus. Uh, so to the, see someone on the TV who has the virus and can talk to you about it and is still doing their job. I mean, God bless him. I don't like to give him too much credit because his head tends to expand quickly. But uh, I, uh, was I was shocked. Who your favorite son was? <laughs> well, he's he has a thing with that, Bob, because I'm clearly my mother's favorite son, and she said it many times, and he still is a little upset about it, but he'll get over it. Well, Governor, it was nice of you to show up in his fever dream last night, and I can only imagine how you're going to show up in his fever dream uh, tonight. That was so mean what he did. That was so mean. Governor Cuomo. And don't repeat it. Anderson, do not repeat what he oh, said. It's in etched that in my mind. Uh, Governor, Governor Cuomo, um, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, keep at it. Robert Kraft, thank you so much for, you. for all you are doing. Appreciate that, and thanks for being with us. Straight ahead, we'll take on the psychological impact of the pandemic as it shows no sign yet of slowing down. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the CNN Global Town Hall. I want to turn now to the mental health component of this health crisis and its widespread impact not only here in the United States but across the globe. Joining us again is Dr. Christine Moutier, who's a psychiatrist. Dr. Moutier, it's good to see you again. Um, I mean, it's certainly fair to say it across the world right now, so many people are struggling with very big emotions, which play out in all sorts of different ways for, for every individual. And a lot of folks are, you know, we're, we're not together with the people we might normally be together with and, and have that kind of to, to help share that burden. I know a big point of yours is to recognize the, the uh, to, to recognize those emotions and not try to suppress them, which I must say is my natural instinct. <laughs> yeah, that's so true, Anderson. None of us really grew up learning how to 
experience and process our emotions um, really all that well. But, you know, I think the most important thing to remember right now is that even in the face of the current situation and even with the spread continuing, we are not powerless. In fact, those effective strategies that we've known how to use to optimize our resilience and manage our mental health are as effective now as they ever have been. And so it's, you know, in a way it's kind of back to the basics. All of us as human beings need regular sleep and we can protect that. Some regular exercise, nutrition, make sure you're hydrating, you know, limit your alcohol intake, have some routine and structure to your day, stay connected to each other and limit um, media and other and sort of sensationalized um, influences in your life right now. So that there are things we can all be doing. You know, uh, one of the things, uh, Doctor, you know, I think you, you talked about last time was that it's it's there's not a lot of certainty, right? I mean, one of the most common questions I get is is how long is this going to last? Is it, you know, is it going to be a new sort of way of life? It's that uncertainty that really I think fuels a lot of people's anxieties. You can't give them certainty right now. So, so what do you what do you tell people? What do you tell patients? Right. Well, when we face uncertainty, which actually is a lot of the time throughout our lives, and not just during this period of time, but there are some exercises we can do. And in fact, there are there's one concept that is actually about inoculating yourself from overwhelming anxiety or overwhelming depression by taking a look and kind of breaking it down. You know, when things are uncertain, it helps to kind of put some boundaries around it and actually even thinking about what is the worst case scenario here? What is the best case scenario? And what are what is the most realistic scenario? And then planning for that. And those are all things that we can do to um, you know, really just help ourselves have some boundaries around that. Even writing it down can help and talking to others, trustworthy people in your life, or if you have a therapist, again, a reminder about telehealth right now. It's a great time to connect with that. I, I just finished reading, re, or rereading, I should say, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is a book I reread a lot. And it, it's about how one man survived uh, the concentration camps. And it does give me hope to, to think that, you know, uh, terrible things have happened to many people throughout time and they have survived it and they have, and we are the descendants of those people who have gotten through terrible things. Um, and I mean, it's not, I, I don't know, for some reason that, that gives me hope, that it gives me a sense of strength that we are not the first, yes, this virus may be a novel virus, but we are not the first to, to undergo trials and tribulations. That is such an excellent point, and by the way, one of my favorite books as well. And as I think about it, we've been through, even in recent history, many pretty massive scale natural disasters, um, other outbreaks, and many people, including our first responders and healthcare professionals who are up front um, right now, they have been through this before, we have been through this before, and been resilient. And it, it is so true that the human spirit is incredibly naturally resilient. And there are things that we can do to take care of our mental health that will actually enhance that natural resilience.
and we want to take care of each other. I think that's a natural instinct as well. Uh, doctor, let, let's get to a couple uh, viewer questions. This one is from Glenda, came in via Facebook, uh, and she asks, what are the long-term effects of social isolation? Well, first I want to make the point that, that you all have been making a lot as well, which is social distancing, which is the term right now, isn't quite accurate. It's actually physical distancing. And so even though we may be physically separated from those in our lives, we do not need to stay socially disconnected. And so that's the first and most important thing. Um, it is actually fine to be physically in your own space over a long period of time if you're having communication with people who you can support and they're supporting you back. Uh, it, it really goes beyond words to try to describe the power that we feel when we encourage and give each other loving kindness and support. It, it's, it's bigger than fear. Um, so it's a time for that. You know, I just heard about the firefighters of New York coming out and parking in front of hospitals, running their lights and standing outside and clapping for the nursing staff and the medical staff for five minutes. Um, I think it was just just yesterday. And um, that kind of encouragement just fills up our human spirit. And we can yeah. do that for each other. Yeah. Last time you were on, you talked about uh, brain health and, and taking care of the brain. Um, and I really thought about that a lot after you were on and, and you mentioned the importance of sleep. And I've really been focused on just trying to go to sleep earlier and actually work on improving my sleep. And it's made a really huge difference. Uh, I've noticed the difference just in a matter of days. So uh, I want to thank you for that and urge everybody to kind of take that into consideration. Just the, the thinking about your brain and taking care of it. And I know, Sanjay, you need you need sleep. Yeah. Uh, I, you and I were talking about this. It's good advice. I, I need to take it for sure. Um, but doc, Dr. Moutier, thank you. We hope to talk to you again soon. And, and uh, beyond the resources, uh, she just mentioned the CDC also has a page of resources. You can see the web address right there on your screen. And before we leave tonight, we want to salute the people risking their lives for us. They're first responders and doctors and nurses and lab specialists and x-ray technicians and physical therapists and firemen and yeah. EMTs and paramedics. Grocery store clerks and delivery drivers, bus drivers, mail carriers. I don't think they ever thought they'd be risking their lives to do their job. Our CNN Heroes team put together this tribute to the hardworking men and women to whom we owe a, a lot of gratitude. I'm a New Yorker. It's essential that I'm out here. No matter what this world will throw, I won't shake me loose. It's a little risk coming outside, but kind of feel like a superhero saving the world. I'll reach my hands out in the dark and wait for yours to interlock away for you. This is a war zone. It's a medical war zone. This is an extraordinary time where you need to see people at their best. It is in our heart and it is in our soul to sacrifice, to serve, to fight for you.
coast to coast, as long as we can haul food for the American people, you will have plenty of food on those shelves. My heroes are all of the people that I work with who are showing up and helping us fight this pandemic. Don't give in to the fear. Let's keep going. Awesome. This is truly an effort by everyone in America to get through this crisis together. Sanjay, I think your daughter, I understand, is even getting involved. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been one of my, I guess, favorite things in the midst of all this, seeing how kids have been adapting to this new normal, doing their part to help as well. You know, you forget, uh, you forget the kids, even young kids are really listening. You know, Anderson, we've been talking a lot about masks lately. So my youngest daughter, uh, she decided to actually make masks for members of the family. Anderson, there she is. She's actually made one for you as well. I'll send it to you. Oh, wow, thanks. She, she knows uh, we shouldn't be using the hospital masks, but that cloth masks might help other people stay safe. Just look at her go there. I'm, uh, I'm biased, but I think she did a great job. Wow. My mask, this is my mask right here. That's awesome. Pretty good mask, huh? She made that? She made that. I'm going to send you yours, too. (laughs) That's cool. You know, Anderson, there's this great quote that I love. Uh, Mark Twain always gets credit for quotes, but I think he actually said this one. Something like, um, the best way to cheer yourself up is to cheer up somebody else. I think it's really true. I mean, you and I, everybody, we're all in this together. So let's make sure we're there for each other as well. Yeah, uh, there's a great quote my mom used to quote a lot. It's often, uh, it's from a, a Scottish philosopher or minister named McLaren, I think, and it's be kind because everybody you meet is fighting a great battle. I think that's never more true than right now. There's a lot of people out there fighting great battles and let's be kind to each other. Yeah, and um, so many people are asking also about, you know, just, just wanting to help, which I find so gratifying. And we put together this uh, for people to find that information, cnn.com slash impact. Sanjay, thank you. Thanks also to Dr. Fauci, Governor Andrew Cuomo, Robert Kraft, also our colleague Chris Cuomo. We hope, Chris, you feel better soon. Also, thanks to all those who wrote in with your questions and to everyone who joined us tonight. This won't be the last town hall we have. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.